we are in the, in the heart of a current sermon series entitled The Nine Virtues, the goal of which is to talk about what it means, what it looks like to cultivate the character of Jesus, not because we believe that salvation comes by character cultivation, but rather uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person and work of Jesus alone. And yet, I've been saying this from week one of this series, where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist, that um, from every gospel root comes gospel fruit. So the question begs to be answered, what does that mean? What does it look like to live that out? What does it look like to keep in step with the Spirit of of God, to walk by the Spirit, as the Apostle Paul puts it? Well, for those who, who love Jesus and follow Jesus and desire to cultivate the character of Jesus, it comes by trusting the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, to bring that work to completion. So there's a, a dependence upon the third person of the Godhead, but we're not talking about a passive dependence, but rather an active dependence that as we acknowledge and depend upon the Spirit, we abide in Jesus. We fix our gaze upon him. We, we walk with him. We pound the nail a little deeper in the sinful nature, helping it toward its final breath. And lastly, we walk in step with the Spirit's leading through the ordinary means of God's grace. Time in the scriptures, time in prayer, time spent with God's people, among God's people. Um, time spent, spent purposefully seeking to excavate heart idols and, and declaring the truth of the gospel to ourselves uh, day in and day out. If you'd like a a more comprehensive unpacking of of what we mean by all of this, this idea of living a life in accordance with the Holy Spirit, um, I would encourage you to go back to week one of this series. Um, I I sought to unpack that greatly, and so you'll get a little bit more expounded version of those ideas if you go back and listen to week one of this series online. But for the sake of moving forward, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And so uh, we've taken a look at the virtues of love, joy, and peace thus far. And so this week we're going to open up the Bible and take a look at a passage on patience. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to James chapter 5. We'll be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats uh, in the row in front of you nearby. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you for free. The church's gift to you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. We're not going to hunt you down and seek your soul as payment for the book that you took from us. We are excited for you to have a copy of the Bible and explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in because we've got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. Patience, God, seems to be the virtue that none of us walk into this room unscathed with respect to. I think if we're honest, we all struggle with Patience, I think the question is more so what's our breaking point? What's the particular situation or circumstance uh, that would really put us through the grinder and cause us to have to depend on you more, to trust in you more? God, would you help us this morning? Even those of us who come in, we go, man, things are intact this week. I don't really know that this sermon is so much for me. Would you even help to remind us by your spirit that that may not be the case next week? or the week after that, or the week after that, that uh, none of us knows what is to come uh, in the uh, ensuing chapters of our lives. And so, God, we deeply need the truth of your word this morning to inform us so that as, as we move forward, uh, we uh, can be a steadfast people in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulties. So, God, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? Uh, would you open our hearts to see and, and receive that which you have for us through your word this morning? 
It's by the power of the Spirit that we pray these things in the name of Jesus to you, Father. Amen. All right, so let me begin with a question this morning. How many of you prayed for patience this week? My my guess would be that some of you prayed for patience because you lack patience. Some of you didn't pray for patience because you didn't have the patience to pray. And then others of you uh, refused to ever pray for patience because you know what that opens the door for, right? You, You know that God might then bring about anything to grow you In that virtue. So no matter where you fall on that list, it communicates that most of us are lacking in this virtue. I mean, very few of us enjoy when a one-hour project ends up taking three hours. Very few of us enjoy when a five-hour road trip takes eight because our kids have to potty numerous times or uh, there's a traffic accident somewhere on the road or the weather got really bad. And some of, some of these things are very trivial, aren't they? Like I can tell you for me, um, one, of the, one of the circumstances, one of the situations where I see my lack of patience rear its ugly head is when I get on an airplane and, and I hear over the loudspeaker, uh, please turn off or put into airplane mode all electronic devices until we reach a cruising altitude. And all of a sudden, that 15, 20-minute window is devastating to me. Are you kidding me? Like, I have to wait 15 or 20 minutes before I can turn on my electronic device, as if, you know, I'm going to miss that next funny cat video on Facebook, you know, as if life is just going to go off the beaten path in in a terrible way because uh, I didn't have my cell phone in hand working, functioning rightly for, for 15 or 20 minutes. We all have those things that that drive us batty, that if people on the outside were to look in, they'd go, are you kidding me right now? Patience is a virtue that reminds most of us that we're still a work in progress, that we're not yet fully conformed to the image of Jesus. And and I don't want to trivialize it. Um, I don't want to make it seem like every experience of waiting is, is shallow and silly. Some of you guys this very morning are in the midst of a waiting game that has to do with uh, the state of your health. Maybe a dire straits financial situation. A friend or a family member that doesn't yet know Jesus that you're lifting up consistently to God. The, the future spouse that you long for that God has yet to bring to you. A desire for children in the midst of a struggle to conceive. A critical milestone that your kid is yet to reach that every other kid in their age bracket has reached. The trajectory of your career and where that's taking you and on and on we could go. There, there are a lot of things that are a little more important than not being able to use your electronic device for 15 minutes as it pertains to this virtue. Many of those things I just listed are what most of us would consider, I would argue, interruptions to our story. They're not the story itself, but rather things that get in the way of how the story should go. But... But what if we're viewing things through the wrong lens altogether? C.S. Lewis, in response to a friend who was struggling with the hand that he had been dealt in life, said this. It's up on the screen. The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life, quote unquote, is a phantom of one's own imagination. What if Lewis says that the things that you declare to be interruptions to your story are the very story itself? What if God is up to something in and through all of it? 
I'm, I'm convinced that Lewis is right, and I'm convinced that this morning's passage actually uh, lays out a strong biblical t- support to what he's saying. And so as we venture into this morning's text, my hope is to help us see that the experiences that test our patience are not opponents of God's compassion and mercy, but rather the very vehicles of God's compassion and mercy. Let me say that again because I think that's critical. The experiences that test our patience are not opponents of God's compassion and mercy, but rather the very vehicles of God's compassion and mercy. Let me throw out a teaser with respect to where we're going this morning in the form of a quote. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary on James chapter 5 verses 7 through 11 says this. He says, the whole of the Christian life is a providentially controlled pressure in order to squeeze joy into you. We'll come back to that. We'll make sense of that momentarily. Now, the reality is, if the Christian life is a life uh, that doesn't include trials, that doesn't include suffering, then there's no need to talk about patience, right? Patience is a virtue that only makes sense in a situation that we would call not yet. And so if there is no not yet, if everything is already perfect, if everything is already utopian, then there's no need for patience. It's, it's critical that we learn this virtue of patience because the Christian life is undoubtedly a life of trial, a life of difficulty, a life of, we could go so far as to say, suffering. If someone told you that all the trials would go away if you just received Jesus, they lied. What you gain is the presence of Jesus in the midst of the trials and a future hope that Jesus will make everything sad untrue. The the book of James is written to a group of people whose faith in God is being tested by the the daily experience of trials. Um, Chapter 5 is, in fact, not the first time that you see this idea of James talking about what it looks like to endure trials. Um, If if you go back to chapter 1, In fact, the very first words that James records after uh, greeting his intended audience are these words. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says this, very famous uh, words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see the present tense promise there? That God is doing something in you? In the midst of the trials, in the midst of the testing of your faith, namely producing steadfastness. And then moving on later in chapter 1, verse 12, we see the future tense promise. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, future, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So you have a present tense promise in the midst of struggle in the midst of difficulty if you remain steadfast and you have a future tense promise james does the same thing in this morning's passage chapter 5 verses 7 through 11 in order to fan into flame the virtue of patience in the hearts of the saints he points us toward the the eternal toward the future and he points us to the present tense work of god in our hearts look at verse 7 he says this be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the lord all right, the, the first thing that we've got to do with a passage like this is to biblically define patience. What does that word mean? The, the word patient in verse 7, the word uh, translated patient in verse 7 in most of your Bibles comes from the Greek word makrothumia. It has two root words, makros and thumos. Makros meaning of long duration, 
Thumos meaning an outburst of passion or a lashing out. So put those together. Of long duration and an outburst of passion or a lashing out. In other words, patience means it takes a while before you lash out. Or you have a long fuse. Think of an explosive device with a really long fuse attached. A circumstance lights that fuse and it takes a while before the the explosion, the lashing out moment happens. And so the next question that begs to be answered is this. What does it mean to lash out? I think Tim Keller is very helpful here in his unpacking of this idea of patience and the antithesis of it. He argues this. He says lashing out can come in a number of forms. Um, The first couple we're familiar with, um, you can lash out with your hand. That would be a physical lashing out. Um, Most of us have enough social wherewithal not to throw punches in most circumstances. You can lash out with your tongue, a verbal lashing out, griping, complaining, grumbling, as we'll see when we get to verse 9. You can lash out with your heart, an emotional lashing out, a a festering, something that happens internally. Maybe you feel something toward God or another person that's, that's unhealthy. And then lastly, one that we would less likely attach with this idea of of lashing out would be to do so with your will, a volitional lashing out, a declaration, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, God. And so let me me give you a couple of examples of how this might work. I thought I'd be married by now, but I'm not. God, apparently your schedule is not in line with my schedule, and I played by your rules for quite some time, and it's gotten me nowhere. So I'm going to compromise some things that no Christian should compromise. But at this point, I don't care. I don't care if he or she isn't a Christian. I don't care if the gospel is at work in his or her life presently. Is that a lashing out with the hand? Of course not. It may be a lashing out with the tongue to some extent. But more so than not, it's a lashing out with the heart toward God, this festering, this feeling toward him and his character and a questioning of who he is and what he's doing in the midst of that circumstance. And ultimately, it's a lashing out of the will. God, playing by your, your rules is getting me nowhere, so I'm going to play by mine now. Another example would be climbing the corporate ladder. God, I thought I would be here by now, and I'm here instead And I've played by your rules along the way, and it's getting me nowhere. So now it's time to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to fudge the numbers a little bit, make myself look a little better than I really am on paper. I'm going to step on a few heads on my way to the top. And the sad reality is that in those moments, we we really set ourselves up for a lackluster life. For less than what God in his kindness would have for us. You see that if you, if you look at the example in verse 7 of the farmer. James says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Contextually, um, autumn and spring rains characterize the Palestinian climate. So the autumn rain would come and it would soften the ground so that you could plant a seed in the first place. And if the autumn rain took longer than anticipated to arrive, you, you might be inclined to plant the seeds early to go ahead and do so without the rain. But if you, if you were to do that, there would be no harvest. 
seed can't grow without moisture in the soil, right? So most farmers were smart enough not to plant seeds in dry, desert-like uh, ground. Most farmers have enough wherewithal to wait for the, the watering of the soil, the softening of the soil. I mean, even the, even the village idiot knows that you can't boil corn without water, right? But there's a second temptation, a far greater temptation, which would be this, to look out on the harvest, and you can see it. The spring rain is yet to come. Maybe it should have come by now. It's late. You can see uh, the harvest above the ground, and all of a sudden, you've got a judgment call to make. Do you cut your losses and go gather the crops because something is better than nothing? Or do you wait for the spring rain? The interesting thing contextually is that the spring rain is what would cause the grain to swell up. So without that swelling, your harvest is lackluster at best. Our hearts cry out all the time. I can't live without these things. We experience that cry often, don't we? If God doesn't give it to me, I'll go after a lackluster form of whatever it is, regardless of if it's in line with God's will, with his very word, with his statutes. After all, we all have a breaking point, and I've found mine. He's pushed me to mine, maybe, would even be the wording that you would use. Keller says this. He says, if you stay put, if you don't lash out with the will and run to false utopias, if you don't lash out with the heart, And just start to water all that self-pity around in there. If you don't lash out with the hand and the tongue. If you stay put. If you trust God. If you submit to his will. There will be a rain. It might not be the rain you think. It may not be that those needs will be met the way you think they would be met. Or you imagine there will be a rain. And there will be a harvest of righteousness. Some beautiful things will grow in you. Coming back to the marriage example. I know the Bible says this and that about marriage, but I don't see the spring rain. So it's time to cut my losses. I know this is a a lashing out of the will of sorts, but a lackluster harvest is better than no harvest. Or maybe the corporate ladder example, coming back to that one. I know the Bible says this and that about work and, and about what it means to treat other people in the midst of that type of context. But I don't see the spring rain. It's the time to cut my losses because a lackluster harvest is better than no harvest. And the truth is, it's actually not. It's worse. It's worse than nothing if you have to abandon the will of the Lord to obtain it. Let me say that again. It's worse than nothing if you have to abandon the will of the Lord to obtain it. Don't trade God for a functional savior. That is a bad trade every time. And we could go on and on with example after example. We lash out at God in situations of health failure, financial crisis, unmet expectations in our children, and on and on and on we could go for hours. There's a lot that we could learn from the example of the farmer. The farmer waits for several reasons. He waits because the fruit is precious, number one. It says that in verse 7. The question for us is, is there anything more precious than being conformed to the image of Jesus? Is there anything more precious than experiencing more intimacy with him? The farmer also waits because he knows that the waiting is not in vain. That as the wait happens, there's something incredible 
uh, taking place even when he can't see it under the dirt, that it's not just about the harvest, but it's also about the growth, the journey, the process. The same is true with us. God is doing things in and through us that we can't see below the dirt oftentimes in our lives. And lastly, and perhaps the most pragmatically, the farmer waits because he can't make fruit. He, he, he must wait on God to bring the spring rain if there is to be a harvest. The same is true with us. We're dependent upon the grace of God to fall on us like rain if there is to be any fruit in our lives. The question is, do we understand what the farmer understands? Are you a person who celebrates the, the journey even, even through the pain because of what God's doing in and through you? And a brief word of caution here because verse 7 is very dangerous. Right. You, you could use verse 7 to, to say, you know, now that you mention it, I think the spouse that I'm in covenant with right now is kind of lackluster. Kind of a pre-spring rain sort of spouse. So I think I'm going to abandon that spouse and go after a different one that, that seems to embody more of a post-spring rain kind of harvest-like reality for me. That's dangerous. You have to abandon the scriptures. It's a work of the flesh. It's a lashing out of the human will against the divine will. And it will lead to death and destruction in the end. That's why it's so critical to process things in the context of community. The human heart will twist anything to get what it wants. Even the scriptures. Verse 8. James says, You also... Like the farmer, be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That Jesus, the one who will right all wrongs, who will set all things right, he's coming soon. It's declared three times in this passage, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. And in fact, it's declared this idea Jesus is coming back more than 300 times in the New Testament. Which means that on average, every 25 verses or so, we're reminded that Jesus is coming back. I think we need to learn, learn that clue in on that. Remember that. Preach that to ourselves. Be patient. He will come and make everything sad untrue. Don't forget. Don't forget. I see you forgetting. Don't forget. That's your New Testament. We could say it this way. The uncertain state of your present reality must be shaped by the certain state of your future reality. That you can only understand the idea of patience in light of eternity. That there is no eternal. It's all about the here and now. It's all about getting while the getting's good. If there is such a thing as a eternity, then everything we're experiencing here and now is preparing us for the eternal. This life is so brief. It's so hard to get that into our minds and work its way down into our hearts. That eternity will not be brief. And the eternal scope of our never-ending future... The here and now is a blip on the radar. You can barely see it on the historical time chart when you bookend it with the eternal existence of God before the foundations of the world and where everything's going futuristically. Which is why it's so crazy when people scratch and claw their way through this life as if this is all there is. Has your heart bought into the lie that this is all there is? C.S. Lewis in his Great work, mere Christianity, I feel like I quote it every other week, says this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. 
the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. James says, establish your hearts. Don't let your hearts get wrapped up in, consumed by lesser things. Don't let your hearts bind to the lie that anything less than Jesus is supremely valuable. Don't let your hearts bind to the anti-gospel that, uh, that says that God's timetable isn't good enough. Fix your eyes on eternity. Allow that gaze to impact the way you breathe the air of today and the next day and the next day and the next day. Where is your heart established? We, we constantly need our hearts reoriented, directed toward God. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here again, a third time, uh, James tells us that Jesus' return is on the horizon. We're in the post-resurrection era. He could come back at any time. For those who, who find themselves amongst uh, the walking dead of cultural Christendom here in the Bible Belt, this is a wake-up call. Wake up. Snap out of it. That going through the motions thing, that's dumb, James says. Eternity's at stake. What a great awakening the Bible Belt would experience if spiritual zombies could see that they're dead. The terrifying thing is that nominal Christians don't know that they're nominal. Oh, how desperately we need the awakening spirit of God to do what only he can do. So here in verse 9, God is kind in giving us an engine diagnostic for the absence of patience. Namely, grumbling. In other words, if you're a grumbler, that might be a check engine light for you. That grumbling is deeply theological. You could say that your grumbling is rooted in how you view God. Your grumbling is rooted in how you view yourself. And your grumbling is rooted in how you view the world. When we lose sight of Jesus, our tendency is to grumble, is to complain. When we lose sight of Jesus, our tendency is to turn on the very community that loves us. Very simply put, when we walk by the flesh, grumbling. When we walk by the spirit, patience. So let me ask this question. What, what is it that causes you personally to grumble? When, when we grumble, it's oftentimes because we're looking for something or some person uh, other than Jesus to rescue us from something. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hurt, we look to people, we look to things to deliver us from that pain. And when those things or those people fail to deliver us, when they don't respond the way we want them to, we grumble. Where is your heart established? Is your heart hoping in Jesus, trusting in Jesus? Or is your heart hoping in, trusting in functional saviors? In other words, when you look at the check engine light, what is it that's under the hood? Or another way we could say it, another word picture. Uh, when, when you look at the fig tree that is your life, do you see any, any withered figs on it? And might one of those be grumbling? And if so, what, what does that say about what's under the dirt? Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So verses 10 and 11, James is really kind to us because he knows that 
uh, in talking about this virtue of patience, that most of us would look at the example of the farmer in verse 7 and go, yeah, that's really nice. That's not a real human being. That's just a story. That's not real life. And so in verses 10 and 11, he gives us a generalized example of the prophets, and then he gets even more particularized, and he says, let me give you a story of a man with a real name and a real family for whom all hell broke loose. In verse 10, it's the prophets. He takes us back to the Old Testament, the very mouthpieces of God. The the men who would declare, thus says the Lord. Many of their stories filled with pain and suffering. If you read through the scriptures, you'll, you'll see story after story of people called by God to remain steadfast in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. Hebrews 11, fantastic example. I would encourage you all to go back and, and read that this week if you've never read it and read it this week for the first time um, for some of you. Uh, what many Christians refer to as the hall of faith. You get this list of men and women, some who, because of their faith, experience great blessing in this life, and others who, because of their faith, experience great suffering in this life. And and here's the crazy thing, according to Hebrews 11, both are pleasing to God. Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah was blessed greatly, that Abraham and Sarah were blessed greatly, that Isaac was blessed greatly, that Jacob was blessed greatly, that Moses was blessed greatly. If you pick up in Hebrews 11, verse 32, it's up on the screen, goes on to say, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's crazy. Wouldn't that be a cool day in the Christian life? What'd you do today? I put my hand on a lion's mouth and shut it in the name of Jesus. Tell me that wouldn't trend on Twitter and Facebook. Quench the power of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. We're made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then without so much as a blink, he goes on to say, the author of Hebrews, some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment like the Apostle Paul. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Um, Many believe that that that's uh, how Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah died. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The reality of what the Bible teaches is this. Faith is not always rewarded in the same way in this life. That that some of you will love Jesus and will live a pretty comfortable life, and others of you will love Jesus and will suffer a great deal for it. Which is why the answer to the following question is so critical. Is Jesus your ultimate treasure? He better be because you have no idea where faith in Jesus might take you. And if your faith in Jesus is contingent upon where he might take you, you're probably not a Christian. It's a question of trust. Do you trust that God is both sovereign and good? That he's taking you down the path he has you on for a reason? And that in the end, it'll be worth it all. Do you trust him? Verse 11 shows us a great story of steadfastness in the midst of suffering. Behold, we consider those blessed 
who remains steadfast, James says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you don't know the story of Job, Job loved God, loved his family, was good to his employees. And as the book of Job opens, he loses everything. His kids die. He loses his possessions. His business runs amok. And the crazy thing is that God is the one who was behind the scenes in all of it. If you go back to Job chapter 1, you, you, uh, many of you know there's a conversation between God and Satan that ensues that sets the stage for this so- story. And, and many people uh, assume wrongly that Satan is the instigator of that uh, conversation. Uh, but if you read Job 1 closely... Uh, the, the very name Job comes to play in the first place because God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? What? Like, you're telling me it's possible that some of what you're going through is ultimately the will of the sovereign God of the universe? That he's allowing the leash of the devil to be loosened a little bit more? That he's allowing you to experience more of the reality of a fallen Broken world? And yet, verse 11 of James chapter 5 says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job's not necessarily who I would have picked as a case study for patience. If you read through the whole story, Job's a little bit of a mixed bag, is he not? But here's where Job gets it right. He never abandons his God. He completely train wrecks James 5 verse 9. He grumbles. He complains. He tries to get into a a verbal dialogue of sorts with God, attempting to lawyer the Lord. But at the end of the day, he trusts the Lord and perseveres by God's grace. And through the journey, he experiences intense, glorious heart change, which is greater than all the material blessings that he receives in the end. Some people take the lesson of Job to be, if you stay the course, God will give you more than what you started with materialistically. And it's true that Job had twice as much in the end as what he had in the beginning. But, but let me tell you this, gaining new sons and daughters doesn't make up for the death of the previous ones. That's just shallow prosperity gospel theology to assume that the win for Job was more stuff in the end. The win for Job is that he was a different man as a result of all that he went through. He had a deeper-rooted joy in God, a deeper intimacy with God, a more firmly established trust of God. In fact, by the time you get to the last chapter of the book of Job, it takes 42 chapters for Job to declare these words. He says this. He's talking to God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It's in this moment that we find Job prostrate before the Lord, worshiping, repenting. The very experiences that tested Job's patience were not opponents of God's compassion and mercy, but rather the very vehicles of his compassion and mercy. Remember the Sinclair Ferguson quote from earlier? The whole of the Christian life is a providentially controlled pressure in order to squeeze joy into you. 
that in the end, Job understood the joy of the Lord in a far more profound way. Some of you know, know what I'm talking about. It's, it's through immensely difficult circumstances in life that you find yourself that much closer to God. That your faith has been strengthened. That your joy is more deeply rooted in Jesus now than it was before, whatever that experience was. Ferguson goes on to say, When the gospel has grasped us, then we don't lose our stability. We're able to be patient and stand firm because the very things that try to knock us over become the instruments in the Lord's hands to put glory into us. That's encouraging. It's good news. Many of you guys have gone through far more than I have in this life. Maybe in such a way that you go, who are you to talk about suffering? I don't want to belittle anyone's pain this morning, anyone's suffering, anyone's hurt. What I want to do is I want to, I want to point us toward the cross of Jesus Christ as we close this morning. And, and here's why. Because many of us in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the struggles, we have a, we have a propensity to question God's goodness. Is he really good? Is he really for me? No matter what our story is, the closer we get to the cross of Jesus Christ, it has a way of melting our hearts. If I look at, let me say it this way, if I look at Jesus bleeding out on a wooden Roman cross, I cannot say he's not good. I cannot say he's not merciful. I cannot say he's not compassionate. It doesn't make the pain any less real, but it reminds us that we have a God who experienced great pain to reconcile us to himself. That going back to the very definition of patience, this idea of having a long fuse, that's your God if you're a Christian. Exodus 34, 6, we see this phrase over and over again in Scripture. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long fuse, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Remembering God's patience with us is what empowers our patience with him and other people. Remembering how patient God is with me, how compassionate and merciful God is toward me and sending his son to die for me, that glimpse of Jesus is what compels me to walk patiently through the trials, to persevere. I can't say he doesn't love me. I can't say he's not compassionate. I can't say he's not merciful. Jesus dying on a wooden Roman cross says otherwise. Praise be to God for his long fuse, without which I would be hopeless. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As we prepare to take communion, let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. There's good news this morning for those of you who are going through um, severe trials, um, severe struggles, those of you who are experiencing great pain, who are being stretched to your limits as it pertains to this virtue of patience. And it's not just a future tense promise. It's not just that Jesus's death and resurrection secures your eternal salvation, future tense, though that's glorious. But it's also true that the cross of Jesus Christ secures for you. Listen to this Trinitarian promise. The cross of Jesus Christ secures for you the love of the Father who cares deeply about what his children are going through. You're not an orphan spiritually. 
You have a daddy who loves you deeply. Because of the wrath of the father being poured out on the son, the love of the father is yours for the taking. You also have the empathy of the son, a friend who understands what you're going through, who knows what it means to suffer, who suffered unto death. You don't serve a God who's removed from suffering, who doesn't get it. When life gets hard, when the waiting is more than you can bear, you have a friend who understands that Jesus is with you through it all. And lastly, you have the power of the indwelling spirit who sustains us, who comforts us, who empowers us in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the struggle. You don't have to look for some form of self-empowerment. You don't have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps in those moments. You don't have to white-knuckle it in your own strength. If you're a Christian, the third person of the Godhead has set up permanent residency within you. So when you find yourself in a situation requiring a patience that stretches you to the limits, it's deeply necessary to preach these truths to yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. I have a heavenly Father who loves me deeply. I have a friend in Jesus who gets what I'm going through. And I have the empowering, comforting, sustaining Spirit of God indwelling me. And in light of those glorious truths, ask yourself in the midst of whatever you're going through, how might God be seeking to sanctify me through this situation? Rather than how can I rewrite the script, how might God be taking me through this experience like Job to strengthen my faith, to more deeply root my joy in him, to increase my intimacy with him? leave you with this statement. The Christian is wise beyond his or her years who is able to say, God just might be using this for my sanctification, for my ultimate good. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us Find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.